and welcome to my weekly podcast interview of In the House Seats with me, your host, Craig Bartley. This is where every Sunday we talk about all stuff regarding theatre, film, television and the ups and downs while training for the performing arts industry. Who knows, some things could even relate to your experiences as a theatre wannabe or participant. Or if you are a parent or guardian of a future performer, it may help you to understand about training and the entertainment industry from a different perspective and someone else's point of view. I will be speaking to professional performers, choreographers, adjudicators and industry leaders to find out more about them and their transitions and journeys from learning their crafts to the professionals that they are today. So for the next 30 minutes, all you need to do is sit back, relax, enjoy and listen with us. Today in the house seat, we have Musical director, composer, conductor, and orchestrator, Michael England. Hello, Mike. Hello. It's great to have you with me today in the house seats, and I'm excited to delve into your career and get the lowdown on your views about performing arts industry and life in general. Now, your career is absolutely incredible and sees you as a real guru in both the classical and musical theatre worlds. So tell us how it all started. Where are you from? And what was life like growing up? So for me, I grew up in Colchester in Essex, where my parents still are based. And I started music fairly early on. We had a piano in the house. Uh, my dad used to play when he came home from work to relax. And his mum, my gran, she was a, a lovely piano player as well. So I sort of grew up seeing them playing. So I started piano lessons when I was seven. And then the street where I lived in Colchester is a quiet little cul-de-sac, you know, the type of thing that you could play in the street as a kid in the old days. One of our neighbours opposite, he was a drummer and he was the drummer for Roy Castle's Record Breakers, on telly. All right. So I used to see him on, on the drumming on the programme and I sort of used to go across and in his garage, he's converted his garage into a practice room, sort of covered the walls with those old polystyrene egg box cartons to sort of soundproof everything. So I used to sort of go and sit and watch him practice. And then early on, my first trip to a theatre was to the Mercury Theatre in Colchester. Right. Which went on to play a very big role in my life. But John used to play on the panto. He used to be the drummer for the panto. And I remember as a, a little kid, I don't know, five or six, walking down to the pit and having to stand on tiptoe to go over into the pit to see him about to start the show. So, yeah, so it's so my early days. And I, I didn't know then that was going to be the first pit I'd ever be a musical director in as well, many years later. But yeah, so I had piano lessons and drum lessons. And then when I went to secondary school, that's when things sort of really took off. Uh, we had a fantastic music department there. Two music Because you were in the school band and school choir and so yeah, forth, weren't yeah. you? It, it, was, it was sort of everything. We had, we had two great music teachers who had different interests. So Val Massey was very interested in theatre side of stuff. She was my introduction to culture drogratic. And Jill Alford was the other teacher who was very much into the, the classical. And she organised trips to London for concerts and things. And then as a parapetetic teacher, it used to go around lots of schools teaching different instruments, uh, Sid Cooper. And he started to be on percussion, having proper lessons. And then he got me into Essex Youth Orchestra, got me the audition for Essex Youth. And that became a massive catalyst for music education for me. Fantastic. So were you really academic at school and did you enjoy school? I did enjoy school. I really enjoyed music and our school was very, very active. The school band, the school choir... 
school orchestra. So Tuesday nights were school orchestra, Wednesday nights were school band, Thursday nights were school choir. Friday lunchtimes was choir. I, there was so much going on. Yeah, I, I did enjoy it. I studied hard, did my best, got yeah. a few exams. It was all right. Fantastic. So after you were inspired by people in the Colchester area, did you do anything for the local community? With all these things, anybody that's in the arts, you, you've started at an early age with your local groups. And one of my music teachers, Val Massey, was very much involved with the Cultural Operatic Society. And I just started secondary school, so I think I was 11 or 12. And they were doing Camelot, and they needed some page boys to just stand in the doorways and look page boy-esque. And there were four of us roped in to do this. So that was my first introduction to ever being in a show. And I loved it. And bizarrely enough, because I, I know you know these connections, the man playing King Arthur was Keith Pollard, who is Ali Pollard's dad. Right. And Alison, just for the listeners, Alison Pollard has a previous podcast on here. So if you want to listen to Alison's as well, because she's current resident director on Book of Mormon and has just finished Dreamgirls at the Savoy as well. And Alison and I went on to work together. She was our resident on Spamalot when we opened in the West End. Amazing. So we, we had that connection from many, many years before. And then bizarrely, I, I did so many things in theatre. Backstage, follow spot. I think it's important to work all sorts of areas. And one year I was doing props for half a sixpence and Alison was in the cast for that one, although obviously we didn't know each other at that stage. Wow. It is very important. I'm always telling my college students, you need to learn and absorb as much as you possibly can within the industry. Because if, even if you went in, away on a, a small tour, you might end up stage managing and or even having to learn sound or set up the lighting to start with. So it's really important to learn all these facets under the theatre industry umbrella. So, so that's a great way of learning, Mike. Now, obviously, because of your ability to deliver works to such a high level, you have learned everything across the board. Do you feel that this is compulsory for today's current learners as musicians? I think you should learn as much as you can. Just be a sponge. The more strands you have to the bow, the better equipped you are. You might not need all of them all of the time. You might only use some bits occasionally, but your knowledge and your experience of them will be invaluable. I remember with, reading an interview with, with Simon Rattle, who loves listening to jazz. Right. Uh, and you think, what, Simon? Sir Simon Rattle, you know, one of the greatest classical conductors this country's ever produced. He adores jazz. It's just like different elements of music will inform you, they'll educate you. So, yes, yeah, soak everything up. So where you went to further your training professionally, did you have a favourite style to work on? I mean, classical is my background. That's I think for a lot of musicians, it, it it is, you know, you you start having proper formal lessons and training. You have to learn the technique and the instrument, etc. And then, you know, many musicians will go off to a, a traditional university, college, academy, whatever, and have some sort of formal training. I think in recent years, that's obviously changed because colleges have realised they can diversify and offer courses in jazz, offer courses in musical theatre, which 30 years ago when I was training, they did not exist. Right. The only courses were around were you know academic, university, polytechnic, uh, those sort of degree courses. That actually leads me nicely into this next question because 
from when you actually trained and even in your first professional jobs, do you think that when musicians play now, their techniques and styles have altered much to fit today's current trends? I don't know if they've, they've altered, just the, the style of shows now has, you know, has everything. So, yes, the, the current style music is much more pop-orientated currently and players adapt to, to do what's required. Tell us a little bit about developing up through the ranks in music as you started with your mentors being Gareth Valentine, Martin Koch, Martin Lowe, and also Mike Dixon, who we both worked on Greece with. Tell us a little bit about why these professionals inspired you so much. You have to remember when I started out in the industry, there was no training for musical directors. Now, you know, a lot of the colleges have courses for musical directors and they take maybe two or three a year but there are courses for the industry and they, they didn't exist. So when I started out, it was a case of writing around letters to people that were MDing shows, asking if you could sit in in the pit, meet them, etc. And a few of them were kind enough to sort of then talk to you about what they were doing, et cetera, et cetera. In those days it was, and I, it was very much an apprenticeship. That right. you got to sit with these people, watch them, see how they did things and learn kind of on the job, which I think is it's the only way to do this job. You, you know, there's a limit. You can learn a lot, of course, at college, but actually doing it is the best way of working out what you're good at, what you're not good at, how to do things in a way that works best. So, yeah, so getting to work with people like Martin Kosh and, and Mike Dixon, et cetera, and, and Gareth particularly early on. Yeah, they, they were They've been around, you know, they've, they've, yeah. they've learned the mistakes themselves, done it, and they can pass on that knowledge to you. So, yeah. Well, Gareth and myself go back many, many years from original 42nd Street because wow. Gareth was the onstage yeah. pianist play- as the part of art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we go back really a long way and, you know, we're still in, we're still in contact now. I met Gareth because I'd done West Side Story at Theatre Royal York and Jeff Garrett, who was in it, said, you should come and meet. Get Jeff was going back into Cats. Right. Said, come and meet our, uh, we're always looking for rehearsal pianists. You should come and meet the MD. So I went in and I met Gareth. And then, you know, they started using me as a rehearsal pianist, which was great. And I remember Gareth gave me two bits of advice. He said, as a musical director, you're the custodian of the score. So right. in the absence of John Kander or whoever it is, you are there to represent them in the rehearsal room and look after their score and... It's been entrusted to you, and that's your responsibility to honour it and to respect the composer's intentions and wishes. So that's your one job. Your other job is to get everybody through it one more time. You know, when you're doing the eighth show of the week, get them through it one more time. And I've always remembered those two bits of advice that Gareth gave me. That is really good advice, actually, isn't it? It's very true. Your areas of expertise and credits are vast, as you have worked for so many orchestras and symphonias globally as guest conductor, musical director and orchestrator for concerts, ballets, West End musicals, television and even composing original works for film. When working with different musicians around the world, do they play differently and have different methods? And have you overcome any obstacles during any contracts? Yes, players do play differently around the world. I mean, we are so lucky uh, in, in this country. The sight reading of musicians is phenomenal. And I don't think, although I've never worked 
I've never worked with orchestras in New York or in LA in Hollywood. I would think they were probably the only other places that you could think might be comparable. I, I don't know, but I would imagine. But in London and in this country, across this country, the sight reading is phenomenal. And it, it's amazing how players can sit and, and sight read and you're, you're rehearsing in the afternoon and that night you're doing a concert in front of an audience. It's, it's extraordinary. And you don't get that elsewhere. So when I go across to other parts of the world, you know, there is a lot more rehearsal time allocated, a mm. lot more, because they, it's a different skill set and it's not one that has been developed particularly. So you do notice that a lot. And then some orchestras are, they're, they're very, I want to say the word classical or sort of straight. They find it hard to swing. So sometimes if you're doing sort of a musical theatre number or a, a classic Gershwin standard or something, it needs to swing. They find it, it's not their natural territory. So that Does it become a bit regimented yeah, with them. Yeah. It, yeah. Sounds a little bit, it sounds a little bit formal and a little bit polite. <laughs> yeah, come on, let your hair down. This is so great that I have you here in the house seats today with me as I've known you for ages and I didn't realise that you'd achieved so much in your career. But let's leave the working aside for a moment and find out more about your loves and passions, such as crispy aromatic duck and Sunday <laughs> roasts. Yeah. Food. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody that I talk to loves a good Sunday roast, that's for sure. It, it, it is. I mean, it's such a, oh, it's a, it is a cliche, but it's, it's traditional British fare. And I have to say, whenever I go abroad, if I go across to Shanghai and with Shanghai Ballet, I'm sometimes there for six weeks, eight weeks. And whenever I come back the first Sunday, it's an absolute must to go out for a Sunday roast and sit down to some food that is, I recognise. Now, I sent you a picture yesterday because, and I had no idea, that you have such a love for fountains. Uh-huh, yeah. Because I was in Trafalgar Square yesterday, walking down to Charing Cross, and I sent you a picture on your phone. Did you? I don't think I've... I did. Oh, no, no, tell a lie. I tagged you in on Facebook. Oh, okay. I haven't, I haven't seen it. Sorry. Because it looked so beautiful last night, lit up blue in Trafalgar Square, and there was nobody about. And I thought, oh, my God. And then because I'd sorted out your questions and everything, and I thought, oh, my God, that's perfect. I'm going to send it to Mike England. That's for sure. So what is this love of fountains? I don't know. Whether, I mean, I'm, I'm a Cancerian, so a water sign, crab sign. So maybe that buried deep down somewhere. I don't know. I just know. I just find them. Elegant, graceful, they're moving, they're always slightly different depending on the sunlight. I just I just can sit and watch a fountain for ages. I I love it. And when yeah. we toured Australia, I was just like every city we were in, I'd be going around snapping photos of all these different and sometimes you'll be in the middle of a shopping precinct or something and there'll be this installation somewhere and it, yeah, I love it. Is it maybe it's the sound as well? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, found yeah. I found the sound of fountains quite calming. Yes. Uh, I'm all in favor of a water feature in the garden. I love it. Now, you worked on productions at the Royal Opera House for the Royal Ballet, such as The Rite of Spring, Chroma, The Human Season, Monotones, Marguerite and Armand, La Valse, Carbon Life, The Judas Tree, Concerto, and my classical dance favourite, Giselle. Tell us a little bit about conducting at the Opera House. Well, I was cover conductor for all those. So it's, it's sitting in rehearsal rooms and watching it all, and you're, you're waiting for the, for the main 
conductor. You know, if they've flown an international conductor in, if they go sick, you're on. So you have to learn everything. As it is, I never got to go on for all those productions, but I got to learn them all. I got to watch the Royal Ballet rehearse, which is just phenomenal. I'm in absolute awe of all of their abilities. It's staggering. Yeah. So you're 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 the insurance policy. You're the cover conductor, and in case of an emergency, somebody going sick, you are on without any rehearsal. You won't have had a rehearsal with the orchestra. You are just you just get up and do it. Do you I never find had it to. hard though if you are cover conductor? your tempos for their on shamans and so forth to dance to. Well, it, it's not your tempos. It's the tempos the dancers require. Right. You know, but yours that. might differ to the actual conductors. Well, in the ideal world, they don't. That's why you sit and watch rehearsals and you get the ballet into your system. So, you know, you can try and replicate as best you can what that production needs. But then, I mean, Giselle was terrifying because when I covered on that production, there were 12 scheduled performances with six different casts. So there were six different couples doing two performances each. And my score was covered in pencil marks. Like a red arrow pushing forward meant Carlos Acosta wanted to go quicker on this section for the leaps. A blue arrow pointing backwards meant whoever the next one was needed to go yes. slower at that point, et cetera, et cetera. They all had different because they leap higher or they... You know, yeah, elevate. Yeah. The thing with ballet is you're watching the dancers and some of them need more time at places and some of them don't, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's, never, it's never entirely your performance. It's, it's like all theatre, it's a collaboration. Yeah, you know? I find it fascinating because you're in charge with a baton of all these musicians to make yeah. them slow, fast, ralentando, whatever you're doing with it, you know, and you're just so in control with it. I just find it fascinating because just one stick, all these people are following. I didn't realise till the other day, actually, a bit thick here when it comes to music, that when an orchestra plays in the violin section, that to make the same sound, all the bows go up and down at the same time. Yes, I mean, aesthetically. I had no idea. <laughs> it looks, it looks very, it's, it's, it's about evenness of tone. That you right. know, as, as the end... Uh, the, the heel of the bow, which is where they grip it, will have a different weight and a colour to it to the to the point, which is the other end. So if they're all in different places, you get a different timbre. Yeah. So if they're all in the same place, they are all creating a, a similar. Oh, I love that word, timbre. I might keep that into my repertoire of words. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just go back for a moment to before your professional career started. Did you ever compete any Music High Steadford's festivals or competitions? Once. I hate it. I hate oh, do you? I, I hate music as a competition. I think art, art is subjective. Art is there to enrich us. And I understand the benefits. It can give people a platform to catapult into, into et cetera. I don't like the concept of comparing somebody's performance against somebody else's and marking it better or worse. I, to me, that's, that's not what music, it's not what art is about. I did take part in some festivals when I was in Colchester and I was doing my percussion and drumming. I was in the Colchester Silver Band and obviously brass bands, silver bands, they have massive competitions. Yeah, big sections. Yeah. yeah and I, I did take part in one and I hated it. I just felt this is, I don't, I don't do, this is not what I do music for to be judged next to somebody else and assessed out of a hundred or it's no, I mean, of course 
you know, as I said, art is subjective and you can go to a show and love it. You can go to a show, hate it. You can go to a concert and like it, whatever it is, you're not going to like everything and that's fine. But to be assessing it and, you know, saying yours is better than this and that's better than that, I, it's not for me what performing is about. Do you feel that it, for some, though, it's a good stepping stone for yes, competitive absolutely. value? Yeah, absolutely. But, but for me personally, I, I, I didn't really like that. It work for you. No, no, it doesn't work for everybody. That's that's for sure. Now you have worked as musical director for television and film productions, such as the film version of Les Misérables, Jerry Springer, the opera, Spamalot on the BBC Raw Variety, and also live performances of The Sound of Music and also conducting and orchestrating Sports Personality of the Year. Tell us about this. Which one do you want to start? Sports Personality? Yeah, let's talk about that. Um, it was great. I mean, for many, for many years. So Martin Koch, uh, who'd been a mentor early on, it had been his gig for many years as music director for Spotty, as it's called, Sports Personality of the Year. And one year he wasn't available. He was busy doing Mamma Mia 2, the sequel film. And he phoned me up and said, hey, I'm, I can't do this gig this year. Would you like to do it? I was like, uh, yeah, I think I would actually. So yeah, uh, so I got to do that, which is terrific. I absolutely loved it. You know, writing the producer would come up with, okay, we need this bit of music for 30 seconds. So, you know, off I'd go and write this orchestration for, I think we had the BBC Philharmonic. Yeah, BBC Philharmonic. Yeah, it's great. And, you know, broadcasting live to 8 million people. So don't get it wrong. And what about the sound of music? Because that was quite a hit on TV. I absolutely loved that gig. Absolutely loved it. Again, you know, it's all, this industry is all about contacts. It was, it was Martin Koch again. You know, we, he'd been the music supervisor for Cats, which had been my first job on the UK tour as assistant MD. He'd been a supervisor for that. And then he'd given me Miss Saigon in London after that. Uh, so that was in 90, we finished in 96 on Saigon for me. And we'd not been in touch much since then. And then sort of out of the blue, I get this phone call saying, I've got this project, it's a bit of a weird one, a bit new. Would you be interested? And so we met up, talked about it, and he was supervising it and asked me to MD and conduct it. And I absolutely loved it. We were doing something that hadn't been done on British television before. And I, I don't think the public really understood what we meant by this is live. You know, we are live. So, yeah, anything could have gone wrong. Fortunately, practically nothing did. But it was, yeah, it was a real special sort of four months working on that. I loved it. So when you did Saigon, was that the Prince Edward version? No, darling, I'm so old. It was the Drury Lane. Oh, d- <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> no, I, I did. I worked on the original production, Drury Lane. I was there in September '94. I joined it, so it was five. Saigon was it, it just was just having its fifth. It just had its fifth birthday when I joined. So it's before we met then. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I did Saigon for a year and a half, and then I left Saigon, because I was assistant MD on Saigon. I left that uh, MD Greece, which is what we worked on together. Now, that was my first big contract as a musical director on the national tour. Well, from that to <laughs> Jukebox Musical. <laughs> yeah. It was such a difference. to working abroad you have conducted performances of hamlet romeo and juliet the sleeping beauty and the lady of the camellias all for the shanghai ballet what was it like working and living in the far east 
exciting, challenging, uh, everything. I, I, I loved it. And I, I have, to, it's all down to Derek Dean, wonderful man who approached me and Shanghai had commissioned him to create a ballet for Hamlet. Up until now, they'd never been a full length ballet of Hamlet. They'd been a 20 minute sort of short thing based on a piece by Tchaikovsky, but they'd never been a full length ballet of Hamlet. And Derek approached me and said, I've commissioned to create this work. Would you be interested in creating a a two-act ballet based on music of Tchaikovsky, adapting and creating a score based on music of Tchaikovsky. So, I, yeah, absolutely. It's a massive project, but I loved it. And then going out there to, to conduct it, um, do the world premiere out there, challenging. Do they play differently? Being Shanghai, it must be quite regimented and quite formative. I, I think going abroad, I, I was, as we said earlier, going abroad to any orchestra, they always play differently. But we were playing a classical score. You know, I, I created the score based on musical Tchaikovsky, and they are a, a classical orchestra, so they, it was a style they were used to. I, I, the hardest thing is is language. That's um, what I was going to ask the next thing. It, 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 it's difficult. You know, quite often, if you're going across to, to Europe, then invariably you can work in English very straightforwardly and, and people can understand. Going to Shanghai, it was challenging. Some players did understand English very well. Some didn't. Some did but chose not to and so there were all sorts of issues I was supposed to have a translator with me but that didn't happen so that was a challenge really Um, hard yeah but then music is an international language so if they were not playing it the way I was trying to get them to I could sing the phrasing and say this is where I want the high point of the phrase to be this is where I want the breath to be you can sing and express it that way so sometimes you know you, you can work without language but yeah I, I did learn from my when I've returned. I re, I learned to say numbers in Mandarin, okay. so I can say rehearsal numbers and save time. You know, because you start a piece and that someone's in the wrong place. You know, we're going from this point. No, 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 no. no it's okay. Isha e. So I could just now tell them which bar we're going from. And it is it is time consuming because I I used to choreograph for Opera and Ballet International and learning the stuff over in in the Ukraine. And then bringing it back and putting it in places like Albert Hall and so forth and on the European tours, it makes it very hard because you have to go through the translator all the time, which doubles up the workload, you know, and it's time consuming. So I exactly know how it feels to have that barricade of them versus us, you know, type thing. Now, you have composed many of your own pieces used by professional ballet companies. Can you tell the listeners about some of these compositions? So when I was going into the Opera House as cover conductor, uh, Barry Wordsworth, who had sort of taken me in there, uh, as their music, was their music director at the time, came to me one day and said, we've got this project, I think it might be of interest to you. And the Royal Ballet School were looking to commission a piece for their end of year presentation. And I went and had a meeting with them and they sort of liked what I was sort of talking about. And so I, I got this commission to write a 35, 40 minute ballet for them to, to do for their end of year presentation. So that, that was a massive commission for me. I mean, totally unexpected. It was very much the brief, the commission I was given was, we want a traditional, melodic, harmonic ballet. So it was very much in the classical, in the real you know, classical yes. sense of ballet. They did not want an avant-garde. They did not want a overly complex rhythmic. It needed to be, you know, singable melodies, accessible harmony in the sort of traditional romantic 
sense of ballet. So that has its challenges because you're you're writing in a, a, a it's a pastiche in a way. It's you know you're homaging a period. When you're asked to do this to compose a piece, do you have to do all the orchestrations as well? Yeah, well, I do because I can. You know, wow. um, some some people some people don't. They will they will sort of write the music and then give it to. For example, in, in musical theatre, most musical theatre writers will write the song and then it gets passed to an orchestrator. Many right. people can orchestrate, but in musical theatre, you simply don't have the time because you know the, the show is in rehearsal. They need a new song overnight, so you've written it. Somebody else then orchestrates it while you're dealing with other stuff. So in musical theatre, yes, you have orchestrators who take the material. And they, you know, write out stuff. In the classical world, you tend to do it yourself. You know, oh, that's a huge task. No, uh, well, you get used to it. That's what it is. And also, you've been doing some other works with the Deaf Men Dancing Group for Mark Smith's. Yeah, work. yeah. So, I mean, obviously, my introduction to sort of ballet with Derek Dean, etc. But I've been working with Mark Smith for a number of years. He approached me to to create a score for one one of his pieces. And then we had a really good working relationship. And so he's come to me over the last several years to create other pieces for him. One of the most challenging was he wanted to try and represent what he hears as, as a hearing impaired person. And I did this experiment. I was playing some music to him. And without him looking at the screen or with his eyes shut, I was I was altering the EQ and basically rolling off the upper frequencies of the sound until I said, you tap me when you can hear a difference to the music. And I'd made such a difference to the music for what I could hear before Mark touched me and said, I can hear a difference. And it's weird because it's like if you or I sat in the bath, you know, you put your ears under the water, everything goes muffled right. a bit distant. Right. That's what Mark hears. And so I was creating this piece with technical effects to sort of do that to the music so the listener could hear what Mark was hearing, which is it was a, quite a challenge, but it's really exciting. And now we have another project that he's asked me to come on board with, and it's creating a piece about Alan Turing, okay, uh, which is really exciting. And so many different. It's it's not just about the Enigma machine and his you know his right. contribution to the code breaking. There are so many other elements to his life that people are probably totally unaware of, and Mark's creating a dance piece around that, which is fascinating to be writing the music for and various other. Sound design. I love Mark's stuff because it's really innovative. I saw his last works. There was some stuff that he was doing at the Greenwich Festival a couple of years back. And I've known Mark for a long time because we both worked at Millennium Performing Arts together. You know, we go back a long way, but his works are so creative and fascinating to watch. And being part of Deaf Men Dancing, it fascinates me how the rhythm can be sustained. It's very clever. You are quite a busy person when it comes to musical theatre, as you have worked on productions such as Les Miserables, The Producers, Jerry Springer the Opera, Spamalot, The Pajama Game, Dr. Doolittle, Miss Saigon, Cats, Kiss of the Spider Woman, Joseph, Grease, Evita, Aspects of Love and West Side Story, with many of these productions being studio recorded and even live performances too. A great career for sure. Tell us a little about some of these performances and productions. And do you have a favourite? Gosh, it's quite a long list, wasn't it? It is, I know. <laughs> I shouldn't have done so much. I think, <laughs> I think I, shows are like kids. I think you, you like each of them in different ways. I, I think, you know, they'll all be a favourite for different reasons. 
Cat, I mean, I won't go through them all, but Cats is a favourite because it was the first musical I ever got to conduct. Right. Miss Saigon is a favourite. It was the first musical I ever got to conduct in the West End. You know, it's uh, Drury Lane, which was staggering. Joseph is a favourite because it was the first West End show I ever played on. I was depping on the pit when it first opened at the Palladium. So you can go through all of them. Phantom is a favourite because the orchestrations of David Cullens are just simply sublime. The way he captures the colours and the tone. I mean, those orchestrations... Uh, and many elements of the orchestrations you don't really get to hear, but mm. when you're conducting it, you you see them on the page and you you can bring them out and and highlight them in the way that perhaps on recordings you don't always get that chance to. But so yeah, all the shows have have different things. I mean, spam a lot. I went in every day and laughed because we had such a fun time. A producers was a very very happy year back at Drury Lane with a score I adored just a great cast so all the shows have different different things So, Mike, what have you been up to in lockdown? Have you learned anything new, like a hobby or a craft? Well, when first lockdown happened, obviously, I'd just come back from Greece. I was conducting Phantom of the Opera in Greece at the time when we got closed down. So I came back and I wrote a book about the thing, which I'd never written a book before, recording the events. I took up yoga, which I've thought about doing for many years and haven't. So I started doing that with some online subscriptions. And then there's this thing called Masterclass Online which you can subscribe to. And I watched various classes with Hans Zimmer and, you know, doing a music one. But there are all sorts of people, Helen Mirren about acting, various directors, and other courses to do with interior design and all sorts of other things. So I've sort of watched a load of those are just a bit of education of different things. And how's the yoga going? Oh, it's good. Who knew? Are you enjoying it? Yes. Now, you are known and have a reputation of being a highly versatile conductor. Is this because of your ability to swap between styles well? Yes, I guess so. Jack of all trade, master of none, some would probably say. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I'm interested in lots of different elements. So I, I, I don't like to get pigeonholed. You know, we all do it. You know, I want somebody that can sing a top B flat. Oh, I go to that singer because I know they can sing a top B flat. You know, you, we go to what we know. But I, I love my classical music. I love my shows. I know the ballet. I absolutely love People want to pigeonhole you. Oh, we need a West End musical director. We'll go to that box. Well, Michael's in that box with, you know, a dozen other people. People sort of know what you're, what you do, but it's, I, yeah, I kind of have different strands to my bow that I kind of want to keep exploring and doing other things. That's great. Well, you have to really, don't you? Just keep yourself really sane and, and achieve more, you know, goals along the way. go back into a West End show as a musical director, which show would you like it to be? There are two shows that I would really like to MD. One is West Side Story and the other is My Fair Lady. And in, I mean, they were written a, a year apart, 1956 and 1957, they were on Broadway, but so different in styles. But I think they are just, I think My Fair Lady is one of the perfect musicals. Why, why would you say that? It's like all great musicals, it comes from a very strong book. You know, Pygmalion is a very strong book. And if 
if it's a good musical, it has to have a good book. You can have a great score in a musical, but if the book's not strong, you know, Mac and Mabel being the classic, a great score, but the book just doesn't quite hold together for whatever reason. And the show doesn't quite land. My Fair Lady has the most phenomenal book to start with. And then you add that writing team and the, the songs are just sublime and the orchestrations, are just everything. For me, it's an absolute top-notch classic. And I would love the opportunity one day to do that show. And Westside, just the music. The music sounds so fresh now. You think how those audiences coped in 1956, where it was just avant-garde to them. No wonder they were walking out of it. Death and bodies everywhere and this score that was practically inaccessible and it's today it still sounds as fresh and as vibrant as it did you know 60 years ago 70 years ago you've been working on quite a few bits and pieces coming up can you tell us a little bit about those yeah i'm really lucky that although obviously our industry is having a catastrophic time i was approached by a production company adam blanchet productions uh, who are working with the theatre cafe on st martin's lane in london which is where a lot of people go when they come up to london to see shows and things it's got lots of posters signed posters memorabilia etc and when first lockdown started, they were doing some live streams and sort of sort of cabaret, open mic type things. And as lockdown was progressing, they sort of entered a partnership with Adam Blanchet Productions. So we've been doing an online thing. And it's called The Theatre Channel. And about every month, we're releasing an episode that runs about 20, 25 minutes, half an hour, something like that. And we are getting people in to do individual songs very you know jenna russell came in and did ladies who lunch etc but we're not just stood by a mic singing it they are stage we sort of set it in our own little conceptual world within the cafe it's been great to actually be able to do something and and have something to theater based which has been really exciting so i know all of us have had the opportunity been been loving the chance to do something now, with that, is there a link that the listeners could go to to see anything? Yeah, so it all comes through. Uh, so the theatre the theater Cafe, which have their website online, uh, they're based in London, in the West End. And from the Theatre Cafe's website, there is a page there that goes to the Theatre Channel, which is, which is what we are. And I think now there's, we have a partnership with Playbill. So I think on the Playbill website, there is a link to the Theatre Channel. Right. And the episodes, the episodes are there. Again, it's sort of pay-to-view to watch. But yeah, we've had an ama- amazing array of West End people come in, come in to do stuff, which has been fantastic to, to do something creative during these really hard times, which everyone's struggling through. Yeah, so that's really something that the listeners can really link into and watch, that's for sure. Didn't Adam, is he one of the producers for Moulin Rouge? Yes. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, whatever you end up doing in the future and whatever production it is, I am sure that you will be working for many years yet to come. That's for sure. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today, both for me and my listeners, to learn more about you and your fantastic career. Thank you so much, Mike, and it's great to see you. Thank you. It's nice to see you again, Craig. Well, unfortunately, that's it for this week. However, don't forget to tune in every Sunday for my next guest in the house seats. This broadcast can be heard on my personal website at www.craigbartley.com or tune in on Spotify, iTunes, and don't forget to give us a five-star review, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Worldwide, Amazon, and by looking up In the House Seats with Craig Bartley. Chat soon.